Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 18 of the podcast, the topic is transforming foundational industries. Our guest is Dana Grayson, general partner and co-founder of Construct Capital, a newly formed VC firm. In this conversation, we talk about how Dana became a trailblazing female VC, her early thesis around the SaaS model as transformative for industry, and her experience being on the board of many famous startups, including Formlabs, Desktop Metal, Onshape, and Frontline Operations Platform Tulip. She explains why she co-founded the 140 million fund construct capital in late 2020. We discuss how software is transforming industries that have been somewhat stale since the Industrial Revolution. She shares her approach to invest in and scale the startups of non-linear and product design aware founders. We look at some recent investments of hers, the engineer workflow tool Copia, EV charging software ChargeLab, fresh food assembly automation, Chef Robotics, and finally, we touch on the future of manufacturing. Augmented is a podcast for leaders. Hosted by Futurist Thrun Nannemannheim, presented by Tulip.co, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG Works, the manufacturing upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, upskilling the workforce for Industry 4.0 Frontline Operations. Dana, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I thought we'd talk about foundational industries. Seems to be a topic you're increasingly interested in. Absolutely. So Dana, you uh, you started out as a systems engineer, so you were already in the engineering space, uh, but then you had... Certainly, uh, a lot of uh, interesting career experiences, and uh, importantly, you were involved in product design at Backboard, um, and then went on to Harvard, uh, got your MBA. You've been involved in uh, several VC firms, and and now you're starting your own. What would you say got you on this track? It is a very specific track for. For a woman to be a VC in foundational industries, which we're going to get into, it's it's very it's very special. Um, how did you get there? Yes, uh, yeah. So I I started um, when I was in college. I, I majored in engineering, and I had the opportunity to work uh, with a couple of founders on an eye gaze technology that they had commercialized into a company, and so that was like my first taste into entrepreneurship. And um, yeah, this was in the late 90s. So there was also a lot going on in the startup ecosystem. And it was the heyday of, you know, the dot com boom. And so everybody was raising capital. And, and so it was a great time to kind of grow up, you know, in the in the venture world and understanding technology companies get funded and how big they can become. Um, I then went on and joined Blackboard after college, after a brief stint in consulting. Um, and and similarly, actually, fast forward to that time, the dot-com bubble had burst already and and BlackBaud still was growing really well um, in, in the midst of that. And that just, you know, speaks to the, to the real product value and the value they were providing for customers at the time. Um, but they had raised a growth equity uh, round of capital from, I think it was JMI and Hellman and Friedman, and we're really doing quite well. So 
I had the fortune of, you know, not having to be miserable in the dot-com bust, <laughs> but actually going to a growing tech company. Yes. Um, and I was still working, you know, on the engineering side and the product development side and the design side at that time, um, not certainly on the investor side yet. Um, and so I, I describe my career up through working at BlackBot as kind of applying my engineering experience from undergrad and really seeing how companies were built from the bottoms up. Um, it was after BlackBot went public and I went to business school that I started becoming curious about how companies were built from the top down, you know, from the investing side, from the board management side, and certainly from the entrepreneur's perspective. And so really, like, it was the turning point of me going to business school and then getting exposed to more venture capital careers and opportunities that I thought, hey, this would be a great way now to approach um, entrepreneurship world. So I joined a venture capital fund in Boston, and I guess the rest is history because I've been in venture capital ever since. So the rest is history. W was it an instant love affair with uh, venture capital? Did you, did you enjoy it? Basically, I, I guess in college already, you were exposed to it and you were sort of uh, perusing and uh, I guess going to lectures and talking to VCs, but you, you instantly just discovered this was, uh, this was a big passion. Um, yeah, I would say I was, I was definitely training and, and learning, you know, what is it all about? I think definitely, I, I would like to think anyway, that my experience on the engineering side and product development side and working on the operating side, uh, gave me some empathy for what, you know, at least operators, if not entrepreneurs were going through as they set up their companies and certainly as they built their companies. It also gave me some insight into great success because BlackBot had, has had and has still been a successful, uh, public company into what success really looks like. So I was really excited by the opportunity to get in on the ground floor, working alongside or supporting rather entrepreneurs as they began that journey. But I would say, you know, what really developed over my career was this focus and specialty. Um, of where do you find your niche? I, you know, eschew the, the, uh, purpose of some venture capitalists to come in and say, I want to focus on X. And then they just go focus on X. Your expertise and where you choose to focus is really born out of your experience. For some that comes directly out of their operating experience when they become venture capitalists, they're able to apply that and really focus on opportunities that they know well. Uh, for me, it was born out of my investing experience over the years. And I had the privilege, you know, to join NEA in 2012 as a partner. That's where I, you know, invested in Tulip, for example. Or, uh, my first investment there was a company called Onshape, and it was in the CAD space. And, you know, really, if you were to say, I guess the rest is history from there on, it would be starting with that investment because that's where I got exposed to the manufacturing space. Um, and all the things that are yet to be digitized in this, in the areas around manufacturing and supply chain. You know, people who, who know you, uh, that I've talked to, they, they say that n not only, you know, obviously are you very uh, passionate and focused and knowledgeable around manufacturing, but you also brought with you some of this eye for what the consumer or the clients really un really want from your product design background. Can you give me just, I mean, you, you've, you've been involved in uh, quite a few investments before your, your current fund. But um, so you said uh, Onshape was pivotal. 
and, and that's a great company that then got acquired by by PTC. You've also involved uh, been involved in Form Labs and Desktop Metal. You know, another three uh, D printing uh, company. What, before you 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 also then were on the board with, uh, of Tulip. What what was special about those companies, and what did you learn in those companies that that set you apart from the rest enough that you have developed this thesis we're going to talk about in a, in a second? Um, I mean, you, you learn so much, mostly from the entrepreneurs that are, that are leading those companies. First and foremost, you learn about different entrepreneurial styles and you really learn that there's no one way to, you know, scan the proverbial cat, but you know, every, you know, whether it's more of an engineering focused company, whether it's more of a, engineering culture, whether it's a market-driven culture, those are two different paths that different entrepreneurs take. But beyond that, it's very individualistic. And um, I would say I try to really work with, you know, every entrepreneur that I back, I try to find uh, that thing that's going to be really attractive to everyone that crosses paths with him or her. Um, it, you know, what is that drive? What is that thing that's going to make the first employee and the last investor both equally excited to say, this person is going to change the world? Um, and then it's about once you make that decision, kind of working, you know, and supporting that entrepreneur to, to be able to continue to hopefully change the world, right? Giving that person the resources that you can bring to bear, whether they're financial or advisory network or talent. Um, and and kind of giving them the most leverage uh, to be become successful. When you speak about it this way, it sounds so easy. But you know, I've come across a lot of investors, and it's it's not always very easy to to see how they operate and how they add value. It's a, it's a little bit of an invisible way that a venture capitalist works with a company. What, what were some of the things that you learned along the way? And, and if anything, were they transferred, like how to become uh, successful as a uh, board member, you know, working for, uh, for NEA or other things, were those also just things that you were learning on the job or are there actually ways to pick up how you become more efficient or, or, or less, you know, at, at, at working with these founders? And like you said, extracting, the best from them and also giving them the best opportunities from the perspective of obviously not being involved in the day-to-day running. So, it, you know, you're not really in a hyper privileged position in the sense that you don't have the time and luxury to spend all your time. I was assuming on, on any of these companies at any given moment. Right. You definitely don't have the time, nor do the entrepreneurs have the time. Um, and that's not your role <laughs> to be spending, you know, tons of time with each company. They have uh, a company to run and employees and customers to serve. So um, I think you've kind of recapped it pretty well in that as a board member, I would call it, or as an investor, your job is to figure out how to provide the most help with the least amount of distraction and when it can be most helpful. Um, knowing what to get involved in and what not to get involved in, what to weigh in on and what not to weigh in on is kind of the difference between the best investors and the best board members and and the worst, in my opinion. Um, so, you know, it's also recognizing that it's your opinion and 
that's really all you can give. And knowing when to insert your opinion and when not to is is certainly a, a difference maker for some companies and entrepreneurs. Um, I'll also say that it's something you learn over time. You know, venture in general and startups more broadly have changed from almost like a cottage industry 20 years ago, uh, where it was definitely very individual, very service level, um, really cottage, you know, is it going to scale? Can you provide this in a repeatable fashion um, into a much more institutional industry today? Venture capitalists um, and entrepreneurs can read and learn a lot without having to be on the job. Um, and that's perhaps thanks to the internet, but also thanks to the number of entrepreneurs and venture capitalists that have tried and failed and, and tried again over the years that provided all the data for others to learn from. So, you know, without that, though, you really do have to keep just trying and failing and, and tweaking your style and tweaking your focus and um, and hopefully landing on some great opportunities in the, in the meanwhile. But um, I'd say it's so, so institutional. Yeah. So, so the startups, though, that you have been involved with have, I mean, w almost without uh, exception, have been enormously successful. This is not, I mean, surely NEA does invest in good companies, but the, the companies that you were involved with, they were all extremely successful. Um, what would you say that you brought uh, with you? And we can get into kind of the, the, the fund that you have created. Was it the thesis around exactly how those companies operated? Or, you know, what sort of pattern recognition is it that you think was the most valuable in conceptualizing this this next fund of yours? Was it something specific about what any of these uh, four or five companies were involved with? Or was it more uh, the founding teams had something special that you now think you have a secret sauce at, at, at finding and working with? Or how would you describe kind of the, the competence more in detail? It's very interesting. Well, first, you know, all the credit goes to the founders because it, it will always be the founding team and you can have a methodology for how to invest, but it's ultimately your access to working with the great founders that uh, are going to drive, you know, great returns and build great companies that, that is most important. So um, I guess I've been fortunate to, you know, create networks and be around some of the entrepreneurs and, um, and, and they've enabled me to work with them over time. That's created that success. Uh, but second of all, in terms of your question around, why did we jump off and, and do this fund in a dedicated way, you know, focused on foundational industries? Because as you noted, I was, I was investing in these spaces previously at NEA. Um, but my partner, Rachel, who was early at Uber and scaled and ran the US and Canada for that company and then ran the new mobility business, we'd gotten to know each other over um, several years, you know, while we were both in our, in our past jobs. And, um, we noticed one thing, and that was that if you look back historically at, at sectors of the tech space in the venture world that have drawn really great value, driven really great value, enterprise software, for example, or consumer internet, those are two well-known areas in the venture and tech world that, you know, if you went back 20 years in the case of enterprise SaaS, you know, Salesforce was just starting, you know, SaaS, you know, was not considered to be a great model yet. 
the ERP solutions were around. But yet there was a vintage, you know, a few vintage years, you know, late in the uh, 2010s, um, 2008, 2010, that really you, for the investors and the companies that really started then, that was kind of the turning point for early stage venture capitalists of if I got into, you know, SaaS companies back in that time period and really stuck to my knitting and kept investing there and staying in those spaces over the next five to 10 years, you really got in early, you saw the change and you drove some really enormous returns uh, for your investors. Same thing happened with consumer internet. So if you look at foundational industries where we're investing, um, you see this brewing, right? Of Onshape, Desktop Metal, Forum Labs, a number of other companies that I would say are just starting that wave of innovation. And so if I zoom out as a, a venture capitalist, I say, okay, I've got early proof that there's going to be a real turning point in these industries, manufacturing, supply chain, pr- you know, production of any sort. And now's the time to really double down on the early stage investing um, focus and build a whole portfolio around it. And we have seen, we've been seeing, we've seen an increasing number of investors turning their attention here, just as they did in the enterprise um, SaaS space in the, the you know, period from 2010 to 2015. Same thing with consumer internet. I think we'll see more and more people turning their attention to these foundational industries, but we feel like it's a time to have a dedicated fund. So your fund is called Construct Capital. And uh, as the title of the podcast is, uh, not just foundational industries, but you have these three verbs. So connecting and automating and transforming what is a foundational industry and what makes other industries less foundational? It's a, it's a very aspirational term. Right. Uh, it, thank you, I suppose, because <laughs> we used it to call, <laughs> you know, this group of industries. Um, and we're glad that it's, it's resonating with people, but we named, you know, this group of industries that make up half the GDP, right. That have, been around for hundreds of years since the industrial revolution. In some cases, they haven't really changed the way they operate since the industrial revolution, but they still drive over half the GDP. But, you know, they have not be, been IT enabled. They have not been digitized. They have not been tech enabled. They do not have a modern IT stack, let alone digital processes that run uh, employees or, you know, back office um, tasks on a daily basis. So those the obvious ones here are manufacturing, um, you know, supply chain and logistics, uh, mobility and transportation, where Rachel has spent a bunch of time. But it also encompasses, and the reason we call it foundational industries, it encompasses a number of sectors that support those sectors, like financial services, business services, workflow automation, uh, productivity, legal, um, education, even we're seeing a number of things in the education space right now. So it encompasses a lot of other foundational industries outside of those three main ones. Um, but you mentioned connect, automate, and transform. Um, and that is sort of the three areas that we look for um, businesses sort of bringing digitization or bringing IT enablement functions to those industries through. Can you give me some examples? I know you've made some investments already. Uh, w- one that uh, I so caught my eye, I guess, was the engineering workflow tool. Uh, Copia is one of them, right? Yeah. Um, what was it that made you invest in that? And what, how do you envision that that uh, product is going to kind of 
I guess, connect, automate, and transform, or or, or either. Yeah, uh, they they only have to do. Uh, we used to be like, you only have to do one of those things. Um, yeah, you do have to meet. You, you know, the reason we break it apart between connect, automate, and transform is you do have to meet the industry where it is. You know, um, some companies or, or firms you say we want to be sort of automation firms or we want to be deep technology breakthrough technology firms. You, everyone has to pick sort of where they're going to focus. And, um, you know, we stipulate that in some cases on the manufacturing shop floor, yes, we all want to automate the actions here, but sometimes they're missing basic connectivity. They haven't moved to the cloud yet. They don't have a modern IT stack. Uh, and so you mentioned Copia. Copia is a company that's really establishing like modern developer operations in the industrial world. Um, we forget that, you know, we've really benefited from that in the general IT space, sort of how developer operations work, moving to the cloud, how you check in code, how you collaborate around code, how you do remote deployments without IT guy coming to your workstation, how you uh, monitor for uptime. All of these things are automated in the IT world. They're still very, very manual in the industrial world. Uh, the machinery is all instructed by local code. And in some cases, you know, the IT department, quote unquote, really doesn't even have a view of, of, uh, what code is out there or what machines are actually working. Um, and so we invested in Copia because they do have this vision of creating this code, you know, cohesion across machines, how you can monitor and collaborate in how code is being developed. And then eventually how you can do remote deployments and, better um, cloud monitoring across your production environments. That's that's interesting. It strikes me though that a lot the, the companies are going to span an enormous sphere of activity. I, just to bring up one of the other uh, investments you've made in Charge Lab, which is an EV charging software infrastructure play, I guess. That that's quite different from an engineering workflow. So first off, that company, you know, what's interesting about it to you? And, and also, how do you really wrap your mind around? I, I understand you're investing in it. You're not day to day, you know, explaining every uh, detail of each business. But these are pretty different areas. They may be all foundational, but this is really challenging for uh, right now. I guess you're, you're at the core team. You're, you're two people. It's right. very, very ambitious. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll point out, first of all, that Charge Lab, for example, is in the mobility and transportation space, an area that my partner, Rachel, who works with that company, um, knows better than I, I do. So we do have some, some degree of specialization, even within foundational industries, but there is commonality between all of our investments or most of our investments. I won't say forever, but most of the investments. And that is number one, they're all software based. So we're really looking for disruption through software. So both in the case of Copia, which is an industrial, you know, automation IT, you know, developer ops solution, and in the case of Charge Labs, which is a charging and EV charging uh, play, it's it's a software company. You know, there are a number of hardware companies that are creating hardware charging stations. We decided we really want to um, focus on how software is going to be leveraged across a number of hardware charging stations and. This company, you know, based in Toronto, has a really great solution there, as well as some really early and but promising partnerships with the hardware providers. So we believe that this change needs to come through software through all these industries. 
Um, and then the second thing that I think that unites all of our companies is we look for companies that can go to market pretty quickly. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's not a long sale cycle. It's not a big hardware deployment cycle. It's not a deep tech innovation. They may have had a deep tech or breakthrough tech innovation, but it's been proven and now they're packaging it with software and bringing it to market. So we definitely love companies that have technical barriers to entry and, and a deep technology inside the company, but we want to see, you know, how are you packaging and bringing it to market quickly through software? Uh, if I just was to hit on w- one more, you know, you're also in fresh food assembly automation with Chef Robotics. That's a that's a that's another space. Uh, really uh, exciting. With food tech is something uh, I guess everybody loves. That I discovered when I was at MIT. It's like impossible not to be fascinated by food technology. But um, yeah, but Chef, for example, is a at its core a manufacturing company because they're right. assembling parts you know, they go into a finished product. No, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Are you having a lot of fun with this new, new venture of yours? Uh, We are, we're having a a ton of fun. We're just, um, uh, specking out now that people hopefully will be getting out, uh, at some point in 2021, we'll be opening an office. So we're just, you know, doing the build out on that. We've hired a couple of folks. We're going to be hiring more. Um, we have these working points of view to help us stay focused as you picked up on. You know, we have one in manufacturing, we have one in um, mobility, one in supply chain. Um, and, and so we do go deep. We, we hope we're never going to be smarter than the entrepreneurs about the spaces that they're in, nor do we want to be. We want to see that the ideas come from the market, but, um, we do want to come at our investments with a research based approach. So that's what our team helps support us on. So you said you invest in in companies that already have proven uh, their technologies, and you you want a relatively sort of quick go to market and product market fit. Uh, but how long is this transformation of broadly of these foundational industries, which you pointed out, it's taken more than a hundred years for some of them to slowly transform. Some of them faster than others. Um, how much longer is it going to take before they transform or is it just an endless process? It seems like you're saying the insertion of uh, SaaS type software platforms is going to really accelerate this. And there, there is a theme to the kinds of digitalization that you are supporting uh, with your investments. Is this now going into a, a very fast cycle where we're not going to recognize the industrial companies of tomorrow from the ones of the past or, or are we still in the era of this is hardware and it, it is slow and you know, these markets are, are going to be slower than the typical venture returns. I'm just sort of asking that question, I guess, because in another sort of converging sector right now, there's a lot of attention among some of the same players, by the way. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the environmental turn of industry right now, but that's, you know, even in the clean tech space, right? Historically, there was this boom and people invested in clean tech and then they got out because guess what? It wasn't so wonderful uh, as everybody thought. It was still hard. There was new technology, but it took time. Right. So, uh, yeah, just asking you to reflect on on that. that That's the period we've been in with um, transforming like the industrial space, for example, over the past five years to a decade of, you know, you're 
and just like with the you've seen in in clean tech and who knows what will happen in the clean tech space if it will come back um, or you know even the SaaS space which I mentioned before it bubbled along uh, and then there was a time period in which like I said 2008 2010 and beyond if you were investing early then you really did quite well if you were investing early in SaaS in 2000 maybe you were in Salesforce <laughs> but you know beyond that you might have been too early so um, we. We don't think change will happen overnight. We think, you know, much like every space that goes through a transformation, there's a period where it becomes, you know, oh, geez, is this ever going to work? And everyone loses faith. Um, but we think right now there's the opportunity to get in with real value um, and ROI based, you know, software, hopefully solutions that people get immediate value through. And then you can grow grow up and, and see if they actually transform the markets. But um, in the past, you know, words have been used like digital transformation. Digital transformation has been, I would say, like clean tech investing <laughs> five years ago. It's very hard. They're monolithic, you know, uh, huge changes to, to companies that people invest a lot of dollars behind. They're like ERP projects that fail, you know, that have been really hard to make successful. We're much more interested in, in something that shows like, even if it seems like a point solution, it unbundles some of the ARP solutions and, and people are actually using it and paying for it. And they've got some semblance of product market fit. They've got some way to get budget on an individual basis and hopefully can grow up to uh, disrupt some larger opportunity within that industry. Interesting. Um, on this environmental or sustainability or ESG angle, is, is there an angle there in your fund or have you explicitly sort of stayed away from that? Because I have noticed that for many industrials, uh, especially on the corporate side now, uh, the discussion on sort of social impact and environmental impact is, is, is heating up. And there's arguably a, a chance that some investments will be Yet again, I guess, channeled towards that mm -hmm. space. Is that something you're looking at actively or, or are you going to stick to your more generic, uh, thesis on, on kind of foundational digitization? I think we, we will, we do not have a working, you know, thesis or point of view around sustainable technology. Um, nor do we have any working thesis around any specific technology. We have theses around markets. So if we were to develop something, or invest in something around sustainability. And we have, like you said, with Charge Lab, that's technically a, a sustainability type of uh, solution, but we invest in it around the mobility thesis, right? We know that there will be a compounding number of EV, uh, EV electric vehicles on the road over the next 10 years, and they all need to be charged in more flexible ways. <laughs> so that's interesting to us versus the need to bring electric vehicles to the road, which I think so many other people are, are and have already solved that problem. Well, there's another aspect that you and I talked about a little bit in the prep, which is this new financial instrument called SPACs uh, for industrial companies, especially. Uh, would you, just for the favor of uh, some of our listeners that may not entirely understand what a SPAC is, would you first just explain exactly what the vehicle does, why it showed up now on the market, and, and why it has been, I mean, by some viewed as a little bit of a cheating way to get to market fast, but uh, by others, I guess, proponents would say 
this solves a real issue for hard technologies that would have otherwise perhaps never gone public, or, or at least not this decade. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think about it, and what, and what exactly is it? Because I think it's not yeah, clear to everyone. What exactly it is, it's basically a fund, you can think about it, you know, for private investors that might be listening, or uh, entrepreneurs that might be listening, you think of it as a dedicated fund that is set up specifically to go find one investment. And it just happens to be <laughs> set up in the public markets. And you, and that fund is raises money on the NASDAQ or as a public entity, but it doesn't hold anything to start. So then they have 18 months to two years to go find a company to invest in and therefore acquire. And then that fund becomes that, that holding, that company. So it's no longer a holding company, a blank check company as facts are called, but it becomes the company that they acquire. And oftentimes, as you noted, um, you know, they look for acquisitions of companies before they plan to go public on their own or before they want to go public on their own. Uh, because I guess, you know, some may look at it as a way to get public sooner. Um, I, I think how it's been used over the past year is, you know, yes, to accelerate the IPO or the public listing of um, certain certain companies. But also, I think it, it's been used wisely, in my opinion, my humble opinion, uh, for some companies that are quite capital intensive, right, that need access um, to more capital. And it allows public market investors to contribute to those to that capital investment versus private market investors. So alternative, alternatively, some of these companies could stay private and they uh, raise from, you know, other private funds. We've seen this happen a lot. Companies don't go public for 10, 15 years, and then they're valued day one at 100 million um, um, plus sort of valuation, 100 billion. You know, it can be very, very uh, lucrative if the longer you stay private. But still for the entrepreneur and the team, they still raise the same amount of capital. They're still being diluted along the way. Um, They're still having to prove value in that uptick. You're always raising capital as an entrepreneur. So it's really just a matter of when do you want to open that up to public market investors and when do you want to stay private? Hmm. Interesting. Look, I wanted to ask you some questions that pertain more to the learning journey that people might be interested in in this domain. So you have access to a bunch of insight that I'm sure was hard won on your part. And we have talked about kind of how you got there. But if you were to sort of advise either uh, someone coming after you or someone, you know, who's looking at, you know, some of the successes you've had, where are the best ways to get in on this business of understanding foundational industries? Whether you are the founders, who you know, of, of some of these trying to just keep up and build the right product, or you could be maybe interested, like you said, on the investment side, perhaps from a more non-traditional background, but wanting to get into the excitement around uh, digital manufacturing uh, plays. Where do you go to stay up to date? How do you stay sharp? I think it it being just a constant sieve of information. um, I, uh, and you really do have to be a sieve because you have to be able to process a lot. I'm not saying I do it well, but I try to talk to a lot of people in the industry directly on a regular basis, um, whether that's, at operating companies that would be buyers of software of some of my companies, or whether 
it would just be experts in the industry or whether it'd be other colleagues at other venture funds or at banks, et cetera, just to kind of constantly get a pulse of what people are seeing at different parts in different parts of the market um, from the buyers, to the bankers. <laughs> um, but I think my best advice to um, people who want to get into venture or think they want to get into venture or investing is I think it's a balance of the best investors I know anyway, are have a balance of intuition, like understanding, wow, this entrepreneur really has that um, sort of something to prove quotient of, I want to go out and change the world and they're going to inspire people to follow them both on the, like I said, the employee and the investor level, but also the analytical rigor to, you know, um, really understand the markets, even if they don't understand them today, putting the analysis behind supporting that entrepreneur and that team to really, you know, grow hand in hand with them over time um, with that analytical rigor of, of behind their decisions. So you have to be intuitive. You have to understand, I think, when to act and when not to act. But it's really great to have that analysis behind you um, to shore up those decisions as that data becomes available. I'll note the data is not always available. Some of the earliest stages, you're really skewing more towards is this entrepreneur great than is their data to really back up what they're doing. It's a belief that they understand the market. Um, they understand how to navigate it and you want to help him or her do that. I love what you said about knowing when not to act or decide thing to get in on something because that it seems to me, you know, and we're, we're you know, I, I also do a little bit of this type of activity and there's, it's a waiting game, right? I mean, you, you, you're really waiting. You cannot, even with a big fund, you you couldn't possibly well you spend it the first week, and you know you probably did not invest in the best deal. So how how do you have the patience to do that? To to know kind of when to cut the uh, cut the check. Right. <laughs> well, that is a that is a very timely question because we are in a very frothy time of the market right now on in the private markets and in, in venture capital and I guess in public markets and SPACs and everything in between. Um, we're in a very frothy time period. And so I think the best governor that Rachel and I construct try to put on ourselves is knowing that this market will change. It'll either, you know, change perhaps for the better and this will continue for many, many years, um, or it will change and, and turn um, southward sometime over the next few years. And so as a fund, as an investment fund, you want to have a, a piece of both of those markets, right? Um, even if they continue, you want to have what's called, I guess, time diversity of money. And that is a key part of the strategy. You also want to have money um, saved away to support your companies over time. Uh, the ones that do great, you want to certainly hopefully invest more in. Um, and then the ones that might take more time before they become great, you may also want to put more money in those to help them um, continue their journey. So you have to save capital to support the companies you are invested into. Speaking about protection for the future, what does what industry, industry with a big I, I guess, foundational industry look like 15 years from now? Um, well, I hope it looks like the enterprise SaaS market, probably. You know, I would, I would definitely have taken an ETF of, of SaaS uh, companies and 2004 to 2010 and and beyond frankly <laughs> um so i hope it looks like that market where things have become more it enabled 
um, in the industrial company world. And I think the rest will flow from there. Great products will emerge. Um, a whole slew of other opportunities on the consumer side might emerge, but you first have to sort of enable enable the sector. Well, look, it's uh, super interesting to hear your your view. You have a unique vantage point on 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 you know on a pulse. I, I'm sure that people will be tracking the companies you in, uh, invest in pretty closely. Um, final final word. What uh, what is your I mean, one of the things that I guess stuck with me is, uh, and you said it, that you, you consult a lot in order to make these smart decisions. You told me earlier you had even like a, almost like a formalized sort of industry panel. Um, in sort of your, your final word, is it more important to, to listen or is it more important to do your own thinking or is it just a hybrid of, of those two that makes for the secret sauce that you've developed? I, I think it's the hybrid of the two. I, I, you know, we continually sort of talk about you, you want to do diligence. You want to do primary diligence as, it, as it's called research on the areas you're interested in to form your thesis to, but it's your job to form the analysis. And so and it's your job to, to, as the investor or the entrepreneur to form your differentiated point of view on the space. So talking to industry experts. Is great as long as you're not outsourcing your decision making to somebody else, right? I, I tell entrepreneurs the same thing. You know, when they ask, is like get lots of advice, but the difference, you know, between the direction you may pick and someone else's direction that they may pick is what advice you choose to follow. So, um, but I'm a big fan of of, of listening and then, uh, you know, putting it all into into our point of view. Well, thanks so much. It's been very enriching for me and I hope for the listeners to, to gain some mind share into what, what, what you're up to, Dana. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great talking to you. You have just listened to episode 18 of the Augmented Podcast with host Ronar Nivenheim. The topic was Transforming Foundational Industries and our guest was Dana Grayson, general partner and co-founder of Construct Capital. In this conversation, we talked about Dana Grayson's role as a trailblazing female VC and what she sees coming for industry, her take on picking and helping founders, and her take on the future ahead of us. My takeaway is that Dana Grayson is right about factories. The factory floor is a too limiting framework to use to understand emerging manufacturing firms. Production facilities might also become micro factories. Industry products become tech platforms. So what does industry look like 15 years from now? We won't even recognize it. The foundation is changing. Foundational industries, yes, but created in a new type of foundries. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 14, Get Manufacturing Superpowers. Episode 10, A Brief History of Manufacturing Software, or Episode 11, Empowering Workers to Innovate. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast.